Kara Meek, and I'm the National President for Women's Energy Network, aka WEN. WEN is focused on developing a community of energy professionals across the world who are connected locally and networked globally. This podcast is dedicated to sharing stories and experiences of those who are part of our growing community. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by WEN Colorado. WENCO was established in 2016 and quickly became Colorado's premier resource for women and men working in all sectors of the energy industry. Since their inception, WENCO has delivered unparalleled networking, professional development, and community outreach opportunities. The WENCO leadership team is always looking for ways to make their organization a resource for members, and this podcast episode is no different. One night while enjoying the cool mountain air, a group of women were chatting about new technology surrounding Bitcoin mining. Who, what, where, why? When someone stopped and said, wait a second, what the heck is Bitcoin? Assuming this is not a unique question, the WENCO team set out to find information and spread the word to all. A special thanks to members Andrea Gross and Sean Forbes for hosting this episode. We hope you all learn and enjoy. Thank you, everybody, for joining this episode. My name is Andrea Gross. I am a project manager for Upstream Petroleum Management. And today we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency. Hey, I'm Sean Forbes. Uh, I work for OGDirectory.com. It's an oil and gas directory. And I'm also on the board of directors for the Women's Energy Network Colorado. And I'm Marty Bent, here to talk Bitcoin. I'm the uh, director of business development at Great American Mining, where we use natural gas as our energy source to mine Bitcoin. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So to be honest with you, I understand the concept of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, but it's kind of still a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. Can you just give us a brief introduction of cryptocurrency and how you get it? So just to simplify it, we'll talk about Bitcoin specifically, uh, since it's the only one that matters, in my opinion, and uh, is the most popular and most used. In short, Bitcoin was created to be an alternative to the central banking system and and the fiat monetary system that that we all live on today. So uh, juxtaposing Bitcoin to the Federal Reserve and the US dollar system, uh, which is controlled by uh, select few individuals, whether it be the Fed chairman uh, and the other presidents of the Federal Reserve banks across the country in conjunction with the Treasury Department deciding uh, how much of our currency is is created at any given point in time uh, where they can just expand the monetary base sort of on a whim, if if you will. Obviously, that's been a hot topic of conversation over the last year as the Fed has printed trillions of dollars uh, to support the markets with, after the COVID lockdowns. Uh, so Bitcoin basically is competing with that system by saying, hey, nobody is con- in control of this system. It is actually run by a distributed network of node operators globally who download the rules of the Bitcoin network and help propagate peer-to-peer transactions across the network. And uh, that network uh, is is sending a scarce digital token known as Bitcoin. So uh, the central banking system can print infinite amount of dollars, as Neil Kashkari famously said last last spring, um, where in Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million units of Bitcoin. So it is a sound monetary system in the digital age, which is an extremely scarce asset, uh, 
which is competing with the US dollar reserve system and other fiat currency systems around the world, which can have an infinite supply. And so the straightforward value prop is that Bitcoin is a better money because it will allow you to preserve purchasing power over time much better than traditional fiat currencies. So according to Price, was Bitcoin or cryptocurrency originally created to kind of stay in line with the value of the US dollar? Because as we know, cryptocurrency has been fluctuating like very high and very low in a matter of a couple of days, depending on what's going on with crypto. So how was that established originally? Yeah, so the value of Bitcoin was never intended to be pegged to the US dollar or anything like that. It is a free floating currency, if you will, and which its value is determined by the market at uh, during every second of every day. It's a 20 market that runs 24-7, 365. The Bitcoin network is propagating transactions uh, every minute of every day since January 3rd, 2009. Um, and you have this extreme price volatility with the Bitcoin token, simply because you have the world attempting to price a new monetary good for the first time in millennia. Bitcoin is a foreign alien technology that has uh, been dropped on humanity by an anonymous founder known as Satoshi Nakamoto. And the price volatility is really an index on uh, global acceptance and uh, confidence in the Bitcoin network, if you will. And yes, it has been extremely volatile. We've seen a 50% drop uh, over the last few months. But uh, if you have a low time preference and you're you're looking at the value accrual into the Bitcoin network over time, over the last 12 years, it's been consistently up and to the right uh, as more and more people discover the utility that Bitcoin, the network and the token provide uh, compared to the traditional means of saving money, which is like the US dollar or sending money which is the traditional payments network, whether it be SWIFT, uh, Western Union, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. Uh, Bitcoin's utility is, is driven by the fact that it is a peer-to-peer nature. So it allows you to send transactions that those payment processing networks wouldn't let you uh, make. And anonymously too, right? Uh, it's a bit of a misnomer. You can use, or a misconception, you can use Bitcoin anonymously, but it does take intention. You have to acquire it in a certain way and send it in a certain way. Uh, the there It is, again, it is possible to send privately and somewhat anonymously. Uh, however, due to the fact that the, uh, the ledger is public and you can see Bitcoin moving from one address to another, most people buy Bitcoin on exchanges like Coinbase, Cash App, Gemini, River.com, whatever it may be, and you have your identity connected to that that exchange and so when you move your bitcoin off that exchange to a personal wallet these exchanges can use chain heuristics to say hey i bet that's marty's wallet and then as you transact from there using those same assumptions it gets less and less the probability that that you're exactly right with who owns what the further you get away from the exchange falls significantly but yeah it's not completely anonymous that's a bit of a misconception it can be used privately um, but just takes some intention um, and some know-how, but hopefully it will it will get better over time uh, using Bitcoin privately as as uh, protocol changes that that allow uh, the heuristics that chain analysis companies use to track people throughout the blockchain sort of get uh, destroyed. And I'm getting a little too far into the weeds here. Yeah, I was thinking because originally, or maybe it's it's was the purpose of creating Bitcoin 
or you know these transactions that the typical banks aren't tracking and things like that to pay for deviant things, you know, um, to to pay for you know companions and maybe a hit a hit, hit man or things like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, but but the some of these. Uh, I don't want to say deviant, but uh, transactions that would otherwise be censored in the traditional financial network, uh, financial system aren't always deviant, right? Like another example is Venezuelans in Caracas who have a very bad currency in the Bolivar and they have family members living abroad who, who need to send them money but are unable to do that because the U.S. government has sanctions on Venezuela um, and particularly Venezuelan bank accounts, you know, Bitcoin provides the ability for Venezuelan family members living abroad to actually get money to their their aunts and uncles, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, cousins, whatever it may be, in Venezuela using the Bitcoin network. And so be sending you money to go buy medical goods or food or, or just have money. Um, where trying to do that from a U.S. bank account to Venezuela is, is much harder to impossible for most people. Is that really what's happening though? Because isn't it, so I used to live in Venezuela. I lived there for three years in high school and the technology opportunities in Venezuela and the kind of just the availability of, I guess it's called mining Bitcoin, which is kind of our next segue into how you actually get or find or buy Bitcoins is that I, I understand the premise of that and how that could help certain um, countries and communities, but is it really what's happening or is this more like, I mean, kind of like a rich man's hobby? Yeah, so there's many ways to get it. It's a little bit of both. It's certainly a rich man's hobby, but people in Venezuela, Argentina, Lebanon, Nigeria are, are using Bitcoin. We have plenty of examples throughout the last year alone, but there's a gentleman by the name of Matt Alborg, uh, A-H-L-B-O-R-G, who runs a site called usefultulips.org. Uh, and he basically does a lot of research in these developing economies and economies that have experienced uh, extreme hyperinflation or extreme uh, constriction on the movement of money within their borders to, to actually try to find this out. Like, all right, Bitcoin claims to be a peer-to-peer -peer currency that can help the unbanked. Is it actually doing it? And he's done research that proves, yes, it actually it has. Like he's created indexes that take into consideration the GDP per capita, internet access per capita, um, and a bunch of other things and, and basically create this index that proves Venezuela, Nigeria, uh, Iran, uh, Lebanon are, are some of like the highest, uh, have some of the highest penetration of Bitcoin users with those, those index factors factored in. And when it comes to actually acquiring Bitcoin, mining is certainly one way and probably uh, the best way if you want to uh, get Bitcoin anonymously or in a, in, a, in a, a way that you don't need to ask permission. Um, it is not the only way. Uh, so you, you see in Venezuela particularly is, is uh, people will freelance and they'll, they'll do jobs for people abroad uh, in the digital economy and they'll ask to get paid in Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin starts to percolate throughout these economies and people start to exchange goods for it and other things. Um, so you, you don't need to mine Bitcoin to, to receive it. You can buy it. Uh, you can work for it. You can have somebody gift it to you. Uh, mining is just one aspect. And mining is actually was a pretty big industry in uh, Venezuela for a while, and it still is, but unfortunately it's the Maduro regime that has confiscated miners uh, and is mining on behalf of themselves. But I believe there are still a lot of 
off-grid mining operations in Venezuela that are hiding from the government. Um, but yeah, there's there's multiple ways to to acquire Bitcoin. People are using it, but yeah, there is certainly uh, rich Western elites who are using it as well and profiting off of it too. That's the beauty of Bitcoin. It can serve many purposes for many different people. Many here in the West use it either as a speculative uh, investment or a savings account, which is what I use it for. Um, in Bitcoin store of value uh, nature and free floating nature um, uh, allows people to to use it in that fashion. And similarly, the fact that it's a peer-to-peer network that is uh, facilitating transactions roughly every 10 minutes, it allows the Venezuelans who who need to accept or send Bitcoin to do, use it in that fashion as well. How do you mine Bitcoin? Is it is it just like a bunch of code where you're just someone is frantically sitting at a computer typing at, on a keyboard or how does it work? Not quite that way. So it's run the uh, so Bitcoin's consensus mechanism, the way you have this peer-to-peer network come to a consensus of who sent who Bitcoin in every 10-minute block, uh, the way that transactions are added to the ledger is you need a way to make it probabilistically like fair for for a global distributed network and in the proof of consent or excuse me the consensus network that bitcoin use uses is called proof of work proof of work is you basically have these computers very specialized computers now that are about shoebox size and they use these chips called asics that do one thing and one thing only and that solve what's known as the hash cash sha 256 uh, hashing algorithm, the mining al- algorithm for Bitcoin. Uh, tied to mining is what we call a difficulty target. All right. And at any, every two weeks, that difficulty target changes. So the way to add and to mine Bitcoin, to add a block to the ledger, is these computers running this very specific cryptographic function, which produces hashes, uh, are solving these trillions of these hashes every second until they find a hash that is below the target at, give, at the given point in time of the network. And so once a miner somewhere around the world produces a hash that you can prove is below the target of the network at any given point in time, they say, hey, I have my hash here. I proved that I did some work, that I used some energy to produce these hashes. Uh, it's below the target. And the network says, yes, it is. And then the miner says, all right, I have these transactions that people want to send on the Bitcoin network. I'm going to add them. And here's how the ledger appends itself based off of these transactions. And the network says, all right, uh, these all fall on the rules. These Bitcoin were where you say they're coming from and they're going to addresses that exist. So yes, you added a block to the network. And because of that, you proved you did some work. You produced that hash. You put the transactions in a block and you added that. Uh, the network rewards you Bitcoin. Uh, it has a built-in subsidy that started at 50 Bitcoin per block. Got cut to 25 Bitcoin per block in around 2012. And 12 and a half Bitcoin per block uh, in 2014 or 2016, excuse me. Um, and then last year, in May 11th of last year, it got cut into 6.25 Bitcoin per block, which is where it is now. Uh, and you also get with that subsidy the transaction fees that people attach to their transactions. So it's uh, it's basically like a global lottery where these miners are running very specific hardware, running very specific functions, trying to produce a lottery ticket below the difficulty target that allows them to get their winnings, which are Bitcoin. That's interesting. Is it like a team effort kind of thing? So you're not the only person in this chain. Yeah. So it's not even a team effort. It's more uh, adversarial, right? Like anybody, you don't have to collude or work. But are you dependent on other people doing things 
for them you to do your thing. So as a miner, we depend on the supply chain for the chips. So the manufacturers who are designing and manufacturing the chip and then the, the mining companies that are taking those chips and making the actual miners. And then, so we depend on that as miners, but as in terms of other people in the network, I guess to the extent that we do depend on anybody, it's to dictate where that target is. So Bitcoin, again, that difficulty target, it adjusts roughly every two weeks or 2016 blocks. So depending on whether or not more computing power came on the network. So if more computing power comes on the network over a 2016 block period, it gets harder to mine Bitcoin um, because it's easier to find those hashes. So you have to increase the difficulty to make sure blocks are coming in roughly every 10, 10 minutes. Alternatively, if hash rate comes off the network within a two week period uh, and blocks are coming in slower, the difficulty uh, will get less hard. So it'll get easier to mine Bitcoin so that you can, uh, the slow blocks will then come in around 10 minutes on average. Um, and so you're not really dependent on other miners, you're dependent on the supply chain of the hardware that allows you to mine, I guess. And you're and also dependent, which is probably why we're here today, uh, on cheap energy to make sure that you can mine profitably. Um, and then, but in terms of having to collude or work with other miners on the network, it's really an adversarial setup. I guess you could say a bunch of miners pool their hash together. So we have these large mining pools uh, instead of waiting, let's say six months to find a block, which it may take if you're mining by yourself, you pool your hash rate with a bunch of other miners um, and then as that pool finds a block, it, it breaks down the block reward and it disperses it to the miners within that pool, commensurate with the hash rate that they're producing. So while you guys are, um, you know, taking, um, you know, associated gas or, you know, uh, reducing flare gas by converting that, capturing that and then converting it into energy, which you then use that energy to power your computers to mine Bitcoin, right? So... Have you, I mean, not to spill the beans on your economics or anything, but. Mining, mining with associated gas that would otherwise be wasted is, um, is allows you to produce a Bitcoin at a very competitive uh, price compared to the rest of the mining industry. Uh, I can't say exactly what that is, but it, yeah, again, it depends on your, your electricity cost. Um, you're all in an electric, electricity cost at the end of the day. Um, so there's some miners mining behind the grid, they're paying some upwards of like 10, 12 cents a kilowatt hour that are still, still making money. Again, it's also dependent on the price of Bitcoin at any given point in time and the difficulty target of the network. So as the difficulty goes up, uh, it gets harder to mine, uh, the price point at which, uh, you mine a Bitcoin goes up a bit. It's, it's, it's the other beauty of Bitcoin. It's this very dynamic living system. It's like a living organism all uh, almost where it reacts and changes itself as, as we humans interact with it in certain ways. Is it currently happening right now? Like, do you have any of these on an oil and gas location? Oh yeah. Yeah. We have many containers deployed and many in the pipeline to deploy throughout the rest of the year. So yeah, we, we have a warehouse, we build them and we build everything in house or shipping containers the electrical engineering that goes into them that allows them to interact with the miners, the racks that the miners go on. We cut out the holes and put in the fans that, that ensure there's sufficient airflow because these miners get really hot. Or the in shipping containers, like how big would um, something like this be on an oil and gas location? Yeah, so you have a 20 foot shipping container depending on like how much gas uh, a producer is looking for you to to offtake. Uh, it, the the actual 
um, footprint is pretty minuscule. Um, you get some, you get some gen sets that are, that are well known throughout the industry and, and used, um, in other parts of, of the extraction, uh, operation. You can just use those for Bitcoin mines and you can like stack these 20, 20 foot shipping containers right next to each other, even on top of each other, um, in some cases. So it's a relatively small footprint. But yeah, it, the the more gas you're consuming, the the more containers you're going to deploy, and depending on the depending on the BTU content of the gas, um, and the amount of liquids that that are coming with the gas, um, that that sort of varies with those factors factored in. So I work in regulatory for oil and gas. Have you had any governments, um, like state or local governments, push back on this, or are they generally? in the areas that they're on, or are they really excited about this? No, they love it. I mean, we, we operate in North Dakota predominantly, um, just due to the, the relatively strict flaring regulations. Producers love us because we come out and we say, Hey, you don't have to flare that gas. You can keep producing oil and we'll, we'll consume that gas on site for you. Regulators love it because we're helping to reduce methane leak, if you will. Um, which is becoming like a bigger focus. Uh, and then we're, we're helping producers become more profitable too. If, if they're willing to put skin in the game, put some capital up to get this infrastructure built out, they can share, uh, in the revenue stream. How long can these containers be on location? As long as you, you need them. Do the miners have to sit in there 24 seven or do they shut down or? No, you want to, you want those puppies hashing as consistently uh, and as long as possible. So they run 24 seven, 365. If you can make that happen, obviously you need to service generators. And if the individual miner, sometimes you need to replace fans or PSUs that come with it. Uh, but yeah, the, the goal is to have them up and hashing, looking for that lottery ticket uh, as consistently as possible. Um, you want your uptime to be above 97 and a half, 98%, uh, which is something that we've been lucky to achieve um, in the field, uh, in, in many instances. And yeah, in terms of like the life cycle, the miners, the, the actual computers, if you're able to build a container in a way that makes sure there's not a lot of dust or, uh, moisture that gets in and you can control the temperature, uh, within the container, you can, you can get a lot out of those miners. The, the life cycle is expanding where in 2013 these chips would last for like 18 months before new generation came out that made the old generation obsolete that's extended to to like four to six years uh new models we believe will will ex extend to be profitable that far into the future um and depending on where a particular pad is on its decline curve i mean hypothetically you could you could plop one of these down and have it sit there for for decades as long as you're just replacing the miners when they need to be replaced and it makes economic sense so you're saying miners as in the miner is the computer mm -hmm. is, the there, shoebox. is there a person or anything that needs to be in these shipping containers or is it just somebody that comes and i mean we have to change filters on the container pretty infrequently again we have we've built software systems that allow us to to basically look over the miners remotely and we can see like if a fan breaks or if a hashboard breaks or again, a PSU breaks, we can say, all right, now we need to send somebody on site to fix this. But that again, happens pretty infrequently. You design the boxes to, to create an environment that, that makes sure they're running in, uh, efficiently. I mean, the most, the, the highest or the number one cause for touch points uh, on site is the generators, just servicing generators and making sure they're doing their job.
So these would be more permanent pieces of equipment that we would permit and have on location for the life, pretty much the life of the producing well. You could, yeah. Yeah, it could just be part of the infrastructure instead of having like an NGL compressor, you bring on a Bitcoin miner. Um, give you more uptime and more money, which is... Uh... So would operators get a cut of the Bitcoin or are they just using this as a way to get rid of the wasted gas, especially like here in Colorado, you can flaring is nearly impossible. Yeah, so it's the latter mostly. Again, the industry is pretty cash strapped in a lot of areas. And so if they don't have the capital deployed to actually get the miners and the uh, needed electrical infrastructure for the containers and stuff like that, like we rebuild them and we'll just do an offtake agreement. But um, again, if, like I said earlier, if operators are willing to put skin in the game, put up some capital, yeah, they definitely share in the rev share, uh, in the revenue of the Bitcoin mine. We have. Is North Dakota, I would say, the the optimal place right now for you to provide these services? Or, you know, I, I think about, you know, condition, weather conditions in North Dakota and, you know, then areas like Texas, they're really dirty and dusty and hot. You know, do, do you guys, does your equipment require a certain um, temperature conditions? Like, wh- where's the best area for you guys to do this? I mean, we love North Dakota. We, we've deployed in North Dakota in like negative 43 degree weather and like turned our containers on and they've been able to do so successfully. And so um, North Dakota is certainly preferable to Texas right now, considering the design of our containers is air-cooled. So we don't immerse our miners in, in liquid cooling agent just yet. Um, and to get into West Texas, we wouldn't really be too comfortable doing it without an immersion build because it gets so hot in the summer. And again, these these things are these uh, miners are extremely energy dense, and they produce a lot of heat in and of themselves. Um, and so, yeah, like uh, up in North Dakota, where you get like maybe a few days over 100 degrees in the summer, uh, for an air cooled unit, it's much more preferable. So you're able to control the temperature. And if it gets too hot, like it would in West Texas, you're gonna you're gonna fry your hashboards and, and <laughs> destroy a lot of your investment, which is um, not ideal considering the, the capital intensity that goes into acquiring the miners in the first place. So earlier you said there's only ever going to be a certain amount of Bitcoin in the world. It was, mm-hmm. what was it? 21 million. 21 million. So, I mean, I get it that that's, a, that's still a lot, but at what point do you think, like, when would it all be found? If it takes off like it could, how, how many years until all the Bitcoin is uh, so it's, it's the beauty of the difficulty adjustments. You sort of have a good estimate of when this will will happen because, again, every two weeks, the network is self-calibrating to make sure blocks come in roughly every 10 minutes on average. And so with that, the, the estimates range from like 2120 to 2140 um, is when the last Bitcoin will be mined. But something like 98% of every Bitcoin that will exist, 99% will be mined by like 2044. And so that, that's why the the transaction fee part of the, the block reward is important as well. Um, because again, this is a distributed network and there's scarce block space, meaning there's only so many transactions that can be included in each block. Um, there's a fee market that develops it. When you send a transaction, you attach a fee to it hoping that miners will include it and they're incentivized to the higher the fee goes. With that being said as well, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is a big misconception out there that you have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Uh, it's not true. Uh, Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million units, which are known as Satoshis. 
Um, so right now you can buy like 2,500 Satoshis for a dollar. You can buy as little as a dollar worth of Bitcoin on an app like the Cash App. And so, yeah, there's only ever going to be 21 million. It's divisible into 100 million units. Most Bitcoin will be mined in the next 20 years, but miners will be incentivized to continue mining because there will be a fees attached to, to the transactions as well. What are some mainstream companies that accept Bitcoin right now? Tesla doesn't anymore. It was a big, uh, big hoopla last week. Mainstream companies that accept Bitcoin. There's, I believe, Steam, which is a gaming company. They accept Bitcoin. There's Overstock has accepted Bitcoin for quite a while. I accept Bitcoin in my store. There's not many mainstream that are accepting Bitcoin out there, frankly. So it's more just like an investment right now. Yeah. So it's in the early stages of its monetization path, right? And so if Bitcoin is successful, which I would argue it already is successful, um, by just enabling the peer-to-peer network uh, in and of itself and being sufficiently distributed, um, the total addressable market for the reserve currency of the world is hundreds of trillions of dollars. And right now we're sitting about like 750 billion. And so the the upward potential for value creation is, is pretty massive right now. And so people are more incentivized to hold it um, at this current stage. And so many retailers in the past have decided to accept Bitcoin, but they find that Bitcoiners, particularly in the West, don't want to spend their Bitcoin. They'd rather use it as a savings vehicle and, and spend their cuck bucks instead on goods, which are, which are just losing um, value slowly as, as the Fed prints more money. In, in capturing gas, you're lowering emissions by reducing flare, flaring. Does mining Bitcoin create emissions? You could argue that like, yeah, the energy that goes in to produce the chips and deliver the chips, that certainly has emissions. Uh, there's no emissions coming out of the miners themselves. Uh, the generators, uh, they emit CO2. But again, you're, you're eliminating the, the methane leak and you're actually getting, you're emitting CO2. You would flaring as well, but you're actually getting a productive economic good out of uh, these emissions. So in terms of like, energy intensity, um, Bitcoin's beneficial in that it helps lower the energy intensity index by producing more economic value per CO2 admitted. Where are the chips mostly made? Right now there's two two big boys in the room in the chip manufacturing uh, game. And so they're known as Bitmain and MicroBT. Bitmain makes ant miners and MicroBT makes what's miners. Bitmain's foundry is the TSMC T- TSCM, excuse me, ta- uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturer. Those chips are produced in Taiwan, and then MicroBT uses uh, Samsung, which is produced in South Korea. The Bitmain and MicroBT started out in China, the companies, they got their chips produced in Taiwan and Samsung, and their companies are domiciled in China. But from what I understand, uh, they've been moving outside of China due to the regulatory uncertainty there, um, I believe, to Malaysia and some other country um, in Southeast Asia. So you, your company specifically mines Bitcoin or the, there are other cryptocurrencies out there and some altcoins and things like that. So do you guys expand into other cryptos or? No, we're focused on Bitcoin uh, long term. Uh, we believe in the promise of Bitcoin. We believe that Really, the altcoins are just noise. There's nothing out there that's going to be able to replicate the the pure launch that Bitcoin had. There's never going to be able to attain the the 
distribution of of coins or network node topography that that Bitcoin has um, produced. Um, in our, I'll speak for myself. I think everything else is an affinity scam trying to be the next Bitcoin, um, and this is just the nature of being in this industry for the last eight, nine years um, almost, and just seeing the cycles of all coins come and go, come and go. They always um, claim that they can do something superior to Bitcoin, which is not, never, never uh, becomes true. And then on top of that, a lot of these altcoins mistake Bitcoin for a tech revolution when it's really a monetary revolution enabled by technology. They, they look at Bitcoin and say, hey, it's slow. It produces blocks every 10 minutes. You can only fit so many transactions in a block. So many transactions can get through the network per second. But they don't realize that this is actually what gives Bitcoin its value because that that design architecture allows it to be sufficiently distributed and makes it so individuals running hardware uh, at their home common hardware can download the consensus rules of the network and contribute to propagating transactions, which is the most important thing. The network has no utility if it's not sufficiently distributed. And so Bitcoin as a network has made trade-offs that sort of fine tune the development of the network and the usage of the network to be sufficiently distributed against attacks from states like China or the US. Whereas uh, other altcoins, they make trade-offs and they allow you to put more information in a block and send transactions faster, but that centralizes their their blockchains from a data size perspective. It's much harder to run full nodes and contr- contribute to the consensus of those those networks. And so I would argue most of the, the altcoins are completely centralized and most people just don't understand it yet. Do you see, where do you see currency going? Do you see everything moving to an electronic currency platform? I do. That's why I focus my life's effort on Bitcoin is because I believe we are at a very, very, very pivotal point in human history. Uh, you have all the central banks, the governments of the world, the world economic forums of the world, attempting to push people into these digital currencies. It's going to be inevitable. Uh, and so we have two paths we can go down. We can go down the future that these governments and uh the Davos class has for people where you use a central bank digital currency that you can only accept in wallets created by governments and central banks. Uh, And once you have that type of central bank digital currency, you can only spend that money uh, in, in certain places on certain things. You can't interact with certain individuals. They airdrop money to you and say, hey, you have X amount of time to spend this money. Um, uh, you basically get the Chinese social credit score system exported to the rest of the world, or you get Bitcoin, which is digital currency. Yes, like that. But it's also extremely different in that it's distributed and the governments and the intelligence agencies don't have the ability to find uh, to the granularity to control the individual transactions within the network. So the Bitcoin is very much a, a revolution around freedom in the digital age as much as it is a monetary uh, revolution uh, from a sound monetary perspective. It is fighting to make sure that, that individuals have autonomy and freedom to transact freely uh, in the digital age, lest they get pushed into the digital panopticon system that central bank digital currencies would, would like to force us into. Bitcoin is currently at $39,000 today. Mm-hmm. 
Where, where do you predict it's going to go? I hear people saying, oh, you know, in 10 years, Bitcoin's going to be a million dollars per Bitcoin. I mean, what is your prediction for pricing? I mean, I'm very bullish. If Bitcoin succeeds, one Bitcoin, today's purchasing power will be worth many millions of dollars at some point in the next two decades. I think I have like 0.08 of <laughs> <a> Bitcoin. <laughs> stack and sats. We call that 8 million Satoshis. You say you have 8 million sats. Which is it's a good stack. You're Satoshi Millionaire officially. I have zero, but now I have a better idea of what it looks like. You've definitely changed what I thought these you know, boxes on location would look like, what mining Bitcoin is. Just a big thank you for joining us on this topic. It's so interesting right now and it's obviously very current. So um, thank you, Marty, and thank you, Sean. Just for everybody listening, we'll have links in the episode notes for you if you want to learn more about Bitcoin and um, Marty's company and how we can use, hopefully, oil and gas locations to conserve, well, I guess, get rid of the waste gas that would either be flared or, like you said, devalued. I would say conserve, right? So you're taking that scarce molecule, that methane molecule, running it through generators, creating electricity, creates hashes, which eventually creates Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin is a scarce digital asset that'll exist in a perpetuity. So you're taking that scarce physical energy resource and meat space, and you're turning into the scarce digital good in the digital world. And that Bitcoin can be used many times in the perpetuity. So you're actually conserving that energy molecule and the scarce asset in the perpetuity. So when you think about like second, third order effects, of Bitcoin from a conservationist perspective is actually extremely, extremely conservative in, in the sense that it's a boon to conservationism because it, it takes those scarce physical assets and memorializes them uh, in the Bitcoin network where it could be traded back and forth into perpetuity. Well, again, thank you so much. I have definitely learned a lot. Thank you guys. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate and review, and follow us on social media. Guest info and action links can be found in the episode notes. But if you have any questions, make sure you contact us via our website, www.womensenergynetwork.org. Until next time, stay connected.